So, you know, they've been on the planet for 80 million years, um, way more experience than we have with the planet. There are so many things that we don't know about the ocean. And to be honest, we don't really know what would happen if they were gone. But it seems like something that has survived for that long can only be responsible for the basis of it. Welcome to the Field Notes podcast. You just heard from Amber Kuhn, director of the Sea Turtle Patrol Hilton Head Island. In this episode, we talked with Amber about how she uses mobile GIS and high-accuracy GNSS in her conservation work. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Field Notes podcast. I'm Demaya. And I'm Josh. We're two product writers here at Esri and hosts of the Field Notes podcast, the show where we talk about and sit down with Esri Field Apps users to learn more about their work and their use of GIS. And today we are joined by Amber Kuhn, who is a marine biologist and director of the Sea Turtle Patrol HHI, an organization that monitors Hilton Head Island beaches annually for sea turtle nesting and hatching activity, and also spreads awareness about endangered turtle species. So we're super excited to talk with Amber today about how the Sea Turtle Patrol uses mobile GIS and high accuracy GNSS in their work. Welcome to the podcast, Amber. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much for being here. So I think, I think we both think this actually, but you have like one of the coolest jobs yes. in the world, you know, Agreed. after we both watched um, your TED talk on the work you do, which we'll definitely link to, um, we were like, oh, we have to have Amber on the podcast. So maybe to just kick things off, um, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe how you got into conservation and and what is your role today like at, at Sea Turtle Patrol at Hilton Head? Okay, well, first of all, to call it a job is a stress. <laughs> uh, a, it's my passion, and B, I have never been paid for it over the last 25 years until very recently. Um, I started a nonprofit to support the fuel prices, the vehicle maintenance, <laughs> you know, insurance, all the things that go along with running a program like this. Um, but most of the co coast of South Carolina, it's all volunteer, um, with the exception of some of the Department of Natural Resources workers. But as far as my background, I was uh, raised here on the May River in Bluffton, South Carolina, which is just over the bridge from Hilton Head Island. And to be honest, uh, my experience was on a motorboat at the age of 12, which is a bad parenting skill. Do not uh, put your 12-year-old <laughs> on a motorboat by themselves. But I survived that and got very um, involved and impressed with the marine environment. I went to uh, University of Georgia for a, a bachelor's degree in biology and then when I came home, uh, that job was not available. So I started to volunteer on the beaches and got impressed with sea turtles. And in my TED talk, I mentioned really one episode that really uh, put me over the edge. And that was just an encounter with a loggerhead um, under the water for the first time. And I was by myself, which is always when you're the most impressed, I think. And uh, went to grad school for three years after that to become a master's student um, with a master's degree in marine science, focusing on sea turtles. Again, the most non-lucrative subject you could possibly imagine, but that's where I seem to go. So I go with what I know, and I'm a boat captain for the most part, um, making my mortgage and bills to payments. <laughs> 
but that's that's a life that I chose and I do what I love and and so I, I don't think I would change anything. Could you talk about some of the programs um, that Hilton at the Sea Turtle Patrol works on and does and like what volunteers do um, with the organization? Okay, so May 1st is the official beginning of sea turtle nesting season on the East Coast. And we start at 5 a.m. every single morning until we find a nest. And then without two weeks of finding a nest, we'll we'll stop the season. So their interval is two weeks. So if we haven't gotten anything in two weeks, we stop. But we're monitoring 14 miles of main beach, ocean-facing beach, um, we're doing side beaches that are equivalent of about seven miles put together. And that's a walking patrol. So it's it's a lot of territory over 20 miles every morning um, looking for the tracks. And once we find the tracks, that's when the GPS comes in. Right. Um, yeah. So we, we mark those with poles and take the data. And um, it's all volunteer. And my volunteers range from 80 years old to 25 years old. So, you know, it's a program that we have had a lot of success with, um, even at that age, um, the non-technology age, it works for us. And, um, you know, there was a learning curve at first and, and we've been using it for three years now, um, but it did, it did work very well. And the town was already using it uh, for different reasons. So the Field Maps app was something that we just inherited from them. Mm -hmm. And the GPS we purchased, um, the reason that we went with this GPS is because we had a situation with Irma in 2017, a hurricane that came near shore to us. And we lost 54 nests in all the poles that went with it. And the, the GPS that we were using was about six feet off of the mark. So needless to say, I think we found eight of those nests. Um, we needed something a little more accurate. And the town was using the Aero 100 already and suggested it to us. So we did. And we will mark the egg chamber within six inches which is very helpful if you much better than six find feet. it now yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with no poles. Yeah. So we, um, we do that in case, but it also gives us the opportunity to have these marks on our, our iPad, which we connect Bluetooth to the GPS. And as we're running down the beach, we see our dot with the nest number yep. and it's a certain color. If it's just found, if it's been 45 days, if it's hatched, if it's been inventoried. So um, after 45 days, uh, we check it every day and that's convenient to have it right there on our, our radar, essentially. And after 45 days, we wait to see an open hole with tracks, little tracks maybe a hundred or so coming out of this hole. And then the, the color changes on the dot for us with the, with the field map system. And we can wait three days per guidelines and go in and inventory it. That means take out all the eggs that have hatched, eggs that didn't hatch, hatchlings that are stuck in the bottom. And then the color changes again after we record all of that data into field maps. 
and uh, we know that we're done with that site plus we take the poles down so it makes it a little easier too but we know exactly where it was and perpetuity which is you know yeah. nice to see as well when we look at the data and sometimes you're tasked with with actually moving the nests too right to protect the 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 um eggs is that correct yeah so we move more than half of them and the reason that we do that you know guidelines gives us three reasons um but the one that's the most prevalent is the spring high tide line so gotcha. spring high tide line is it happens every full moon, but occasionally also we get a king high tide, which happens like four times a year when the moon and the sun are in alignment and pulls the water even higher up on the beach. So um, we mark that line with the GPS. So we've got a line that goes down the beach where the water has been the highest. So every 10th of a mile, we took a mark with the GPS and field maps puts a line down the beach. So when a nest is laid, um, we can look on the GPS and see if we're below that line or above that line. And if it's above, of course, we just mark it. If it's below, we can move a nest within 24 hours. After 24 hours, it becomes, um, it begins to incubate. So we don't, right. we don't want to move that or disturb it. it. It, the embryo attaches to the inside of the shell. And, and if it's rotated, you can disturb the process. It could detach. And once it does, it doesn't reattach. Mm -hmm. So we need to make sure they don't move after 24 hours. So that's one of the reasons we go out so early in the morning. So we can catch that, that time frame, but also to um, avoid 3 million tourists in a year that <laughs> is it, <laughs> Yeah, right. walk on the tracks and, and marking them really is to alert the tourists that there's something there and that they shouldn't be on top of it or in it for any reason. Right, because Hilton Head Island is like popping off, especially in the summertime. Like it's like, uh, you know, as someone who grew up in like South Georgia, that was a big travel destination. Like, you know, you probably see so many people. Do you find that like through through your work, do you see tourists taking kind of ownership of that responsibility and like being respectful for most of the time or? Most of the time, uh, we yeah. we have to do a lot of education all summer yeah. long because every week is a new batch of, of visitors. So they check in on Saturday, they check out a week later and the turtle talks that we offer every night in the summer are helpful, but there are a lot of beach ordinances that they don't research before they get here that will affect a sea turtle hatchling, which is lights out after 10 p.m. Hatchlings are attracted to that artificial light and filling holes. Hatchlings fall into holes and they don't get out, so they never make it to the water. You know, little things like that. Right. And the hole only has to be less than a foot deep before you you can disturb that whole process that doesn't get completed. If they fall in, they can't get out by themselves. So those things are try. We try to communicate those things, but with so many people and 14 miles of beach, it's really hard sometimes to get that message across. Maybe going back a little um, to kind of give our listeners a foundation in this work. Could you talk a little bit about um, what turtle species nest on Hilton Head Island? Maybe why they nest there? And then speaking of tourists, maybe some of the hazards or uh, threats that they face um, when they nest on, on the island. So we've had four species altogether. We have had one Kemp's Ridley in 30 years, April 26, 2019. <laughs> really rare to have Remember that it? one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah we, we've had five leatherbacks 
yeah. um, nest on our beach and we've had maybe nine greens, green sea turtles, but it's mostly loggerhead. There are seven species all together and we've had four of them um, approach our beach. So that is that is it out of the seven. One is an Australian flatback, which will never nest here. Right, <laughs> right. Makes yeah. sense. <laughs> and the second half of the question. So there are tourists on the beach all night long <laughs> doing things that people do on vacation. Right. Yeah. <laughs> alcohol, things things like that and and you know if you see a 400 pound reptile walking out of the water it's hard not to go investigate <laughs> so sometimes you know we have that issue as soon as the turtle sees the person it's going to turn around and walk back to the water without nesting um, and that's called a false crawl and eventually she'll try again but if it happens repeatedly she'll give up but there's another clutch of eggs coming two weeks later. So she's got to get rid of them to make room for the next clutch. So she'll just disperse them into the water and we will um, will not see any results from that nest, obviously. Yeah. So we, we don't like to see that happen. Mm -hmm. um, it will happen if they're digging a hole, if they're um, preparing a hole, but it won't happen once they start laying eggs. They won't stop the process, which is interesting. Right. Like once they've once they've started dropping them, they're in a trance. They don't respond to anything. I think you know maybe if we get back to kind of the work that you do with with the GIS and just like mapping out the locations. And I think it's so cool that you're able to use field maps to not only have the location of the nest, but also have that high tide line there as well. So you're looking at multiple things. Are there any patterns that y'all have noticed over the past few years from collecting this data like is it do you ever go beyond just like the active monitoring are you looking at you know areas of the beach where you know you see more nests versus not where more nests thrive versus where they don't is that kind of information something that you look at absolutely so we we have nesting data since you know 1985 1990 it really became um consistent and we have found that the ends of the island are highly erosional and our nests are not very successful on those ends, like a mile and a half on either end. So we'll move those into a more um, stable part of the beach. And, you know, as far as the GPS goes, it puts us right on the money as far as, you know, where exactly those locations are. You know, six feet can make a big difference. Right. You can lose six feet of beach. Um, just from one storm, bad storm. So we need to make sure that those nests that incubate for 60 days are going to have as much success as they possibly can. So in my research, I read an article on the Hilton Head website that you um, were interviewed for. And I remember you saying that there was always something new on the beach that brings the work that you do into a bigger view. And I was wondering, could you talk about maybe some of like your favorite experiences um, over your time working with um, the Sea Patrol times where new things have been brought to view or you kind of had new perspectives on the work that you do? Yeah, so a lot of people say, well, Amber, it's not the sea turtle nesting season. How are you enjoying your off time? <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, there's not off time, is it? Yeah. <laughs> it? It's more than just being out on the beach and, and protecting the sea turtles. There are town council meetings where we try to reinforce ordinances or make them better. And that takes a lot of work you know, ordinances that are out of date with sea turtle biology, like the ordinance, the lighting ordinance being upgraded to interior lights and, and both floors and, and things like that. 
but uh, also we had an opportunity to convince the town that we needed an ordinance about personal property left on the beach. So we've got tents and towels and toys and, and people just leave their stuff there and, and hope that it'll be there in the morning, you know, which that in itself could be stolen because it's on public property, but we remove it now for the last three years, we've been picking it up after sunset and taking it off the beach because we had so many instances of loggerheads coming up to nest, hitting in the dark, a tent or a, ta or a tear and being frightened and turning around and not nesting. So it was added to the, the ordinance roster. And um, so I've been on the beach because as a marine biologist with a master's degree, I pick up trash because <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't trust anyone else on the beach with a vehicle and, you know, not to run over right. a, a new endangered species or a hatchling and not know what to look for. So I do that job uh, for that reason. And I've never spent all night on a beach um, on a regular basis during the nesting season. I do that when we have beach renourishments and things like that. But I've run into, not literally run into, but come across some loggerheads that are um, injured permanently like missing rear flippers which is what they dig their hole with mm -hmm. or cracked shells or, or something that that debilitates them paralyzed flippers and in the case of digging a hole I can notice their tracks because you'll see they have an injury with their track and follow the track and help them dig their hole and after so many years of doing this and my opportunity in 2020 to, to do that for the first time was very one of those you know as you get older you're like impress me impress me right right <laughs> I've seen most of it but this I had not done and it was very successful yeah and one in particular you know we we dug the nest she used her flipper that that worked well was very quiet dealing behind her by myself and dug with for the other flipper which she doesn't really realize is missing she just kind of moves it around and and pull my hand out just in time for her 400 pound body to shift and then put her other flipper down drops the eggs in there I help fill in the hole we you know she heads back and it's very inspiring I watch that nest for 45 days um start checking it every day when it hatches it hatched beautifully except for all of the hatchlings went to the rental property behind the nest. No. So it's one of those things that may have happened just to keep me on track. You know, like Amber, this is really important. You see the effort that these turtles make. I mean, first of all, they're pulling their 400 pound body up the beach with flippers, oh. which are not feet. <laughs> they're right. not meant for walking and they don't actually walk after hatchlings enter the sea they don't walk for approximately 25 to 30 years and the males never come back so they never have to walk again so the females walking up the beach um it's a big deal just that to dry sand and when they get there digging with a flipper that's you know not a hand or anything and and then going through that effort it's massive to have it not end up with any success Thank you for sharing that experience and what a, a rare moment that I feel like not many people can say that they helped a sea turtle dig and, and lay <laughs> lay their eggs. I mean, what a, a moment to commune with nature. And I think it's so inspiring too, to hear that, like, even after all of these years in your field, like there's still things like that, that are happening yeah. um, that are new and uh, experiences. And I think I'd like to take a moment to just like 
maybe ask you about the why behind all of this. Like, obviously, I think most people can agree that it's important to protect an endangered species, especially as one is like mesmerizing and, and wonderful as, as sea turtles. But but what are the larger implications of of the dangers that these sea turtles um, face? What does it imply for for our oceans and our environment that they are not thriving in the ways that maybe they should be? So, you know, they've been on the planet for 80 million years, um, way more experience than we have with the planet. There are so many things that we don't know about right. the ocean. And to be honest, we don't really know what would happen mm. if they were gone. But it seems like something that sort of has survived for that long can only be responsible for the basis of it you know like I can't imagine that they haven't put themselves into a position yeah. where everything kind of um, built upon it so you know I, I feel like they're at the bottom of the Jenga the Jenga tower where you yeah. pull out the, the the piece and the whole thing falls down so that's one of the things about protecting endangered species and anything on the planet naturally is you know some some things we can predict some of the newer things uh species to the planet but with these there's there's much that we don't understand about their role in the ocean because once they leave it's hard to keep track of them unless they're on the beach you know we keep dna samples of each individual so we know the population but once they leave the beach it's really hard to keep up with that right. um so really important, um, this this Esri expedition, I'm going to call it, uh, because it's, <laughs> it's brought to light so many things mm -hmm. um, with the accuracy that we have. Uh, with lighting ordinance, for example, you know, losing 4,000 hatchlings in a season can be detrimental. We're, yeah. we're thinking one in a hundred or one in a thousand the prediction is really vast but it's between a hundred one in a hundred and one in a thousand make it back to 30 years old to be sexually mature so it's hard to recover the species because they are so slow growing and slow to mature uh, we won't see results like we would with other species as quickly but every Saturday night during the season, we go out with code enforcement and we are able to pinpoint the addresses of the homes from the beach that have their lights on. So in that case, you know, Esri's gonna give us um, an opportunity to document the address on top of the roof. And then we can correlate our position on the beach with that rooftop or that home that we see in front of us. And then we visit the next morning to explain to usually the visitor who's renting the property that's super important to have the lights off. Um, so 4,000 hatchlings, maybe four opportunities to have a returning female come back to the beach is a big deal. Right. Yeah. So that that's a misorientation when we have that situation happen, like I explained with the injured turtle. And we'd like to see less of that because of what we're talking about because it's it's so um crucial with an animal that we have no idea what really what its purpose is mm -hmm. in the ocean it's just got to be a big one after 80 million years yeah <laughs> definitely you know it's got to be high up there yeah and over the years that you have used gis and gnss um, for high accuracy 
have you noticed I guess trends and in how the turtles kind of nest or the behavior, or has it provided kind of new insights on on how you understand um, sea turtles um, in an interaction with Hilton Head? So, you know, the turtles don't see any of the marks on the beach, obviously. Right. Um, it's just gonna be the environment that we provide for them, the nesting habitat. What it does, and, and as a field biologist, um, I got this position, you know, officially, I think in 2015, uh, to head up this program. And we were using paper cards and, and inaccurate things. But what I don't realize when I graduate from grad school, you know, way back when, is that people don't have the passion that I do necessarily. And when you're talking to local government, maybe state government, you have to provide data. Yep. They, don't, they don't care how much you care. Right. <laughs> about the sea turtles right. or, you know, what tears that you, you come up with when you're begging for help, they care about how many, how many hatchlings did we lose? Where on the beach did we lose them? Over a 10 year period, how many, you know, where were they? It's just revealing, very revealing to me that you don't make change for conservation unless you can provide data to people who are making those decisions. And I think that's the biggest thing that Esri has helped me with and, and the accuracy that we can provide. And they are impressed with the accuracy. You yeah. know, you don't go out there with a pen and paper. You have actually a map to show them on an iPad that has right. you know, a bajillion nests on there. And, and you can highlight the hot spots where you've had issues with lighting and, and even when I am out on the beach at night, picking up chairs and tents and towels, I actually mark every single location and what I pick up with the Esri system, the field maps. So, you know, if it ever comes up, well, you know, we don't want to ban pop-up tents on the beach like some beaches have. Um, well, I can say, you know, well, we had so many tents at this location at this, you know, and then I can also document a false crawl and correlate it to that with the same program. So it's very helpful and technology impresses them. Right. I mean, you put that data on a map out. Anyone is like, oh man, I guess you're, you're not lying. Like this, there really were like 30 tents out there next to these sea turtle nests. Um, right. I think that's like the amazing part of it. It's not just like the numbers, but it's like that visual, like you were saying is so important. And we've heard that from other guests where it's like mm -hmm. local governments need buy-in, like why should they care? What are the numbers? And and you're right. This is a powerful tool, not only for, for you to locate them, for, but for to get buy-in from the community and be like, this is why you should care about this because we're not just, you know, kind of making this stuff up. It's actually happening. And look, we can give you within six inches of where it's happening on our beaches. Yes. And then I have contacted our supervisors at the state level at Department of Natural Resources and explained to them how useful this could be for the whole state. Right, right now, Hilton Head Beach, and there are several beaches that monitor for sea turtles. We're the only ones that use this technology. Um, so maybe eventually the whole state will be using it. And at that point, <laughs> you could look at the whole state and the right. progress and the incidents and really hone in on what those municipalities are doing and what's working for them versus what's working for us. And it just, it, it could be much more than it is. Right, because now. I mean, 
you know, you're, you're just looking at the one beach that you're kind of monitoring on, on Hilton head. But I mean, if you could get the state or even just like a lot of the East coast, I mean, they all deal with the same problems of, of erosion of tourism. And, you know, there's always that power in shared data. So if everyone could kind of get on board with this higher accuracy collection and these apps, I mean, think of the power that could be in, in that data. Right. And I think some of the hesitation is, well, we have to learn this or, you know, I don't yeah. think that our volunteers who are mostly retired individuals that walk the beaches and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but I've had I've had great luck with with teaching my retired um, volunteer staff uh, for the most part. And it's totally worth it. it. It really has made a difference for me and my effort, you know, I'm less on the beach in the morning and I'm more the administrative person now. And um, it, it definitely is going to make a difference. Well, I guess to close out the episode, I would love to hear how people can learn more and get involved. Are there ways that people can lessen their impact on sea turtles? And are there any resources that you want to kind of promote to our listeners? So of course we have a website, Sea Turtle Patrol, HHI, Dot org and we have a, a dedicated nest program where you can learn about specific nests and and how they progress over the season and the overall end of season statistics and that sort of thing uh, ways to donate and that's usually you know how we can move forward if you're visiting Hilton Head participating in the public turtle talks which is offered for free finding our events page and finding out what's available to learn more and of course there's several things online that you can learn about sea turtles, simple things. If you're visiting in your beachfront, turning off the lights, filling in the holes, um, you know, at night, not approaching unless they're, they're already dropping eggs or I can't tell somebody who's never seen a ancient reptile lay right. eggs on a beach in a lifetime experience, <laughs> not to go up and, you know, kind of respectfully observe. Um, but you know, how to do that and how you can get the best experience and, you know, coexist on, on a beach. Um, we have a video on our website that explains kind of more about what we do and visiting the website and seeing that can be helpful as well. It's an eight minute video. So just making a little bit of effort goes a long way for sure. Well, thank you so much for sharing those resources. Um, we'll link to all of that stuff in the show notes so people don't have to remember links. They can just go and click on them. And thank you so much for being on this podcast. It was so awesome to be able to talk with you and just hear about the incredible work that you've done. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful for Esri and all the technology that they've shared with us. So um, it's my pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Field Notes podcast. All sea turtle nest monitoring activities on Hilton Head Island are sanctioned by the South Carolina Department of Natural Resources under permit number MTP566. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe to Field Notes on your favorite podcast streaming platform. 